0: Before we jump into this episode, I just wanted to say a very heartfelt thank you to all of the beautiful guests who gave of their time to make this podcast what it is. I can't believe people so willingly contributed their expertise to a new podcast that they didn't even know if anyone would listen to. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I am sincerely grateful.
1: This is the Reimagined Workforce podcast from Workforce Transformations Australia. The podcast for people and culture professionals seeking to drive meaningful, impactful and financially sustainable workforce transformation through curiosity, creativity and data science. In this podcast, we hear from talented and innovative people making a positive difference for their people, their organisations and those their organisations serve. They share stories and learnings to help others on their path to transforming their workforce today and tomorrow. Now, here's your host, Kath Hume.
0: Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank every one of you who has listened, subscribed and commented on the Reimagined Workforce podcast. I have to admit to being a tad overwhelmed by all the support. I suspect there are people in your network who may be facing their own workforce challenges. I'd love for you to share these episodes with them or subscribe and give the show a rating to help improve its visibility. When I started this podcast, I committed myself to produce at least 10 episodes and then reevaluate. Our 10th episode is now available and I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of all there is to discuss in the realm of workforce transformation. What I am confident about is that this topic is high on people's agenda. It's something people are keen to talk about. I also think it's a topic that affects almost everyone and can evoke people's emotions and passions. For so many of us, work is fundamental to our identity. It has a massive influence on our health and well-being, both at work and in our lives. Philosophically, I believe that work should be a positive experience because we invest so much of our lives to it. I cannot honestly remember a time when I didn't feel that at my core. When I left school, I majored in employment relations and sub majored in economics because I wanted to demonstrate to organisations the financial value of looking after your people. I have to admit to feeling absolutely gutted when, with my rose-coloured glasses, I entered the workforce and discovered this wasn't a commonly held belief. What does thrill me though is that some 20-ish years later, there has been a seismic shift towards making work more human by valuing people as individuals who are all unique, have diverse backgrounds and experiences, and all have something to offer the world. I accept that we're not there yet, but we are certainly making progress. I don't think I need to tell anyone that the world of work Well, actually, the world in almost every aspect has fundamentally changed since COVID-19 became a reality. It's hard to identify a facet of our lives that hasn't been impacted in some way. I think the degree of impact exists along a spectrum from disastrous to wonderful, and most things lie somewhere in between. For many, COVID brought the opportunity to work from home, a privilege that might not have been afforded if COVID had not occurred, at least not just yet. Well, this may have been a blessing for some. For others, it meant attempting to work while caring for others. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that I was not in that impossible position. I have four children who are relatively independent, which enabled me to focus on one task at a time that was rarely interrupted. This is just one of a multitude of examples that demonstrate to me that people's experiences differ for a variety of reasons. If we want to get the best of our people, It's our challenge to understand those impacts, identify those reasons and the effect they have so we can manipulate them for our mutual gain. Organisations and the people in them share a symbiotic relationship where they both derive mutual benefits from their contribution. And I believe there is a multiplier effect derived through reciprocity where the more we give, the more we get. And the cycle continues. As I record this, it's late 2022 And the world continues to change. For months, we've been talking incessantly about the tight talent market and the need for innovative workforce strategies to keep the workforce we have, nurture them to grow and all while attracting the workforce we need. But in the last few weeks, Elon Musk has taken ownership of Twitter and my LinkedIn feed is full of people who have been laid off. I think the count is around 11,000 employees, many of whom are now searching for work. Additionally, inflation rates are rising, real wages are falling, and governments are increasing interest rates to slow it down. I worry about low-income earners who are vulnerable and what might happen to them. I can't help but think that some of the inflationary pressure was driven by increasing salary levels because organisations have approached the war for talent through financial reward, creating a price war that will never end well. I started this podcast to encourage people to think differently, to discover those innovative solutions that we need to ensure people can apply their capabilities in organizations where they're needed. I want people to ask what if, and consider things we might not have thought of before, even if they seem impossible. So I thought I would take the opportunity in this episode to share three ideas of how we might solve our workforce challenges that are relatively cost neutral and cost effective. The first of these is job crafting. Job crafting is where employees make adjustments to align the fit between the role the organisation has defined and their own personal preferences. It empowers employees to reimagine and redesign their role in personally meaningful ways to make it more enjoyable while still achieving the same or better outcomes for their organisations and the people they serve. I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Ruzniewski and Dutton, who initially proposed the term, believe that even in the most routine jobs in the most restrictive environments, employees have some degree of control over how work is performed, who it's performed with, and the meaning that is derived from it. Job crafting is beneficial because, as Hertzberg demonstrated back in the late 1960s, it enhances the autonomy in employees' experience and boosts their motivation. Autonomy is one of the core characteristics that positively impact an employee's psychological state and results in improved motivation, performance and satisfaction, along with reduced absenteeism and attrition. Many empirical studies have also shown the positive relationship between autonomy and job involvement, general health and well-being, and metacognitive learning processes, while enhancing resilience to negative aspects of work that may be unavoidable, such as might occur in a healthcare setting. What is essential for job crafting is that it is initiated by the employee who has the necessary understanding of the work, the expected outcomes, and their own strengths and preferences, placing them in the perfect position to be crafting their own role. Job crafting can impact the task, the relational or cognitive aspects of a role. Task crafting occurs when an employee alters the nature of the task or the amount of time and effort invested in it. An example of this might be an employee whose day might typically involve back-to-back meetings. This employee may apply task crafting to reduce their standard meeting time, say from an hour to 45 minutes, to allow themselves a 15-minute gap between meetings. If we follow Parkinson's theory, which is one of my favorites, work expands or contracts to fit the time allotted to it, then there should be no change in the outcome but there may be significant enhancement to the employee's health and well-being, performance and satisfaction from having what might be perceived to be an extra 15 minutes to reflect on the meeting, prepare for the next, or heaven forbid, go to the toilet or get a drink. Another type of job crafting is relational crafting, which refers to how, when and whom the employee interacts with when performing their role. If the task itself cannot be altered, there may be scope for an employee to influence who, when and how they work with their employees or customers that improves the enjoyment and meaning they derive from their work. A great example of this was highlighted in interviews with cleaning staff in major Midwest hospitals in the US, who saw themselves as part of the professional team impacting patient outcomes and not just janitors. These individuals reported being alert to the varying needs of patients and their carers, and adapting their interactions with them based on what they believed was required. For example, they would pay attention to where the patients had had visitors and made an effort to speak to those who may be lonely or needing extra care and attention, all while being very careful not to overstep the mark. I'll be speaking with Ralph Books and Shoes this week for a future episode where he will discuss with us his approach to organisational network analysis. This is a process to understand how information and decisions flow throughout an organisation through both the formal and informal networks. ONA recognises that within organisations, there are people who are the conduits for the exchange of information and ideas. This demonstrates the importance of social relationships on organisational performance. Encouraging relational crafting and visualising the organisational network analysis can empower employees to seek, build and maintain stronger relationships with preferred individuals to drive more positive outcomes when interacting with others. The other type of job crafting is cognitive crafting, where the employee reframes the perceived value of their work. Another example from the Midwest Hospital study was the housekeeper who made a point to rearrange wall art in the rooms of comatose patients, which I think many of us might believe to be a bit of a waste of time. But this housekeeper held the belief that changing the patient's environment may have a positive impact, and by performing this task, felt their contribution held significant meaning. This individual was altering the way they thought about their work, so they derived greater meaning and fulfillment from it. For job crafting to result in higher levels of engagement, it is imperative that employers perceive their work as meaningful. Employers can assist here by clearly articulating the purpose of their organisations and supporting their employees to see how they contribute to achieving it. I do appreciate that many people may think I'm dreaming and that job crafting is not a feasible option. Occupations like nursing, call centre staff, and traffic operators, for example, must follow a clearly defined set of procedures to ensure the safety of their patients and customers. However, we do need to empower our employees to look for opportunities to craft their roles to meet their personal preferences so they can find meaning in their work and deliver mutually beneficial outcomes for themselves, their organisations and the people they serve. Job crafting should ideally employ a mix of all three of these and it's not a one and done. It does need to be a sustained effort and adapted as needs change. So the next two ideas I'm sharing are about making better use of potential labour sources that you might not have considered otherwise. By this, I mean those pockets that are often overlooked or, dare I say, avoided. Two examples I'll talk about here are neurodiverse people and boomerang employees. So let's start with neurodiverse people. People who are neurodiverse include those who experience ADHD, Tourette syndrome, dyslexia, autism spectrum disorder, Asperger's, and other atypical neurological conditions. Research indicates there are some common traits neurodiverse people possess that are valuable to organisations, including their attention to detail, their loyalty, their ability to process information, their productivity and work quality, their levels of engagement, and their reliability. Depending on the source, an estimated 30-40% to of the population are neurodiverse, and of those, approximately 34% are unemployed. That's a huge potential workforce that could solve many of the workforce challenges we face today and tomorrow. I recently listened to an episode of this Working Life podcast that I'll link to in the show notes with guest Aaron Mercer, founder of the organization Exceptional, whose mission is to help neurodiverse people find employment while supporting their employers. I have to admit to being quite unaware of the challenges neurodiverse people face in obtaining and maintaining employment. Even though I had some awareness to these conditions, I'd not really understood how this played out in the workplace. Before I've a few examples, I want to make it very clear That every neurodiverse person will have different factors that impact them in a range of different ways. So, please let's not assume that there is a one size fits all solution for this group. I am no expert in this space, so I'm just pointing out a few things that I've learned on this topic, but I do encourage you to explore this further. Listen to the This Working Life podcast episode, and why don't you share your own experiences on what we could do better with us on this podcast? So, all I'm going to do here is list out a few of the strategies that Aaron and others have shared on how we can support neurodiverse people in the workplace. So they mentioned that we could assist neurodiverse people to prepare for interviews by providing them with the questions prior to the interview to allow them time to understand what's being asked and consider the best way to respond. When interviewing neurodiverse applicants, be aware that they may be sensitive to sensory stimuli. So consider the light, smells and sounds in the environment where an interview is planned to take place. Avoid cafes and crowded spaces because they may overload the applicant's senses and make it difficult for them to think clearly and demonstrate their suitability. Instead, find a quiet location away from the kitchen or eating area that is not too bright and make sure the temperature is neither too warm or too cold. And of course, this can be beneficial for non-neurodiverse applicants as well. When onboarding, be aware that social interaction may be overwhelming, So limit the number of introductions by spreading them out over time and try to avoid whole team introductions without time for the employee to prepare. At all times, encourage the neurodiverse employee to inform you or others of what they need and any requests to adapt the workplace to meet those needs. When communicating, consider the literal meaning of communications. Aaron shared the example of phraseology like, at the end of the day, and how a neurodiverse person might take this literally to mean by 5pm, which may induce unnecessary stress and anxiety. In the workplace, which includes anywhere where work is undertaken, make technology accessible by using closed captioning and making transcripts available, and building breaks between meetings, especially when they are virtual. Provide flexibility to allow neurodiverse people to choose the environment in which they work best and the time of day when they work. To create a safe and productive work environment for neurodiverse employees, foster inclusion through psychological safety, kindness, empathy and tolerance. Educate other members of the workforce on the needs of neurodiverse people. Develop, communicate and reinforce diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging policies and processes and recognise the achievements of neurodiverse people and the value they contribute to the organisation and the people they serve. Designing work and workplaces for people who identify as neurodiverse will not only increase your labour supply, it is likely to benefit the rest of your workforce as well. And remember, some neurodiverse people may not feel safe advising their employer of their condition, and these adaptations will help them as well. So now let's explore the potential of boomerang employees. This one will be pretty quick because I think it's relatively simple. I imagine every listener has heard of the Great Resignation, where organisations globally are experiencing higher rates of attrition for a variety of reasons. Can I start by making a distinction between regrettable and non-regrettable attrition? When high performers leave critical roles, this is regrettable. However, there will be times when people leave who may not have been performing to the standard necessary or their roles may no longer be required, which is not regrettable. A boomerang employee strategy would aim to have those people who you regret leaving return. In 2021, 4.5% of new hires were boomerang employees compared to 3.9% in 2019, indicating this approach is being used more often. Rehiring people who were previously employed and performing to a high level can provide you with peace of mind, reduce recruitment and onboarding time and expense, result in higher levels of performance, and provide existing employees with a level of comfort that their organisation is a good place to work. There is also a good possibility that these employees hold their current registrations that may be required, which again can speed up the recruitment and onboarding process. McKinsey report that many employees who resigned voluntarily during the pandemic did so because they'd been operating under extreme pressure for an extended period of time and were unable to find the work-life balance that they needed Many left because they felt they were unable to sustain their workload and that they had no option other than to resign. Often, they did not have another job to go to. Not surprisingly, the greatest attrition rates were experienced in consumer and retail, healthcare and education sectors that were all significantly impacted by the pandemic. Organisations that are still battling to increase their workforce capacity in a very tight talent market where the labour supply is often just not available. To gain the greatest benefits from boomerang employees, organisations need to develop an employee listening strategy to engage with existing employees, especially those in critical roles, and ask them why they stay. This will not only help to understand what it might be like to bring boomerang employees back, but is also likely to inform your retention strategies to prevent people from leaving because they value their organisation and their place in it. Your boomerang employee strategy will also need to identify those employees who you would like to return, understand why they left, and determine what they are hoping for so you can ensure that you are able to meet their expectations. Interestingly, the top five reasons why past employees returned included workplace flexibility, compensation, sustainable work performance expectations, career development and advancement potential, and meaningful work. Research by Vizia reported that the most critical time to attract past employees back is at the 13-month mark. This peak is sharp, and 13 months is really the sweet spot, so organisations need to act quickly, as the likelihood of people returning reduces significantly after that time. It's important to note that of the employees who left voluntarily and returned, 25% are at least somewhat likely to leave again within three to six months. So it is absolutely critical their reasons for leaving are addressed to save everyone the hassle. When bringing people back, think creatively about what you might be able to provide for them. McKinsey suggested a subsidised cleaning service instead of a gym membership as one idea. But the best ideas will come from asking the people you're attempting to bring back and being realistic about what you can provide. The Vizier report mentioned that boomerang employees often returned on significantly higher salaries. Financial reward is just one of a gamut of strategies to attract people back. Personally, I don't love the idea of financial reward, especially on its own, other than for low income earners, because I worry about the impact this might have on the people who remain loyal to the company who may not be financially rewarded. I also have concerns about the inflationary pressure it might create, and I think it ignores the full range of benefits people derive from work and what they value. But that could just be me. Anyway, If you're still with me, thank you for hanging in there. I'll include links to the many resources I accessed in developing the script for this episode in the transcript on the Workforce Transformations website. If you have other creative and innovative strategies that you have implemented in your organisation that you'd like to share, please connect me on LinkedIn and start a conversation. Until next
1: time, take care and have an awesome day. Thanks for listening to the Reimagined Workforce Podcast. We hope you've found some valuable ideas that you can apply to transform your own workforce today and tomorrow. Additional information and links can be found in the show notes for this episode at workforcetransformations.com.au slash podcast. Please share this podcast with your community and leave us a rating to let us know what we can do better for you.